0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash Cut. This episode features director Kenneth Lonergan's new film, Manchester by the Sea. The film tells the story of a Boston janitor who is shocked to learn that he has been made sole guardian of his 16 year old nephew after the sudden death of his brother. He reluctantly returns to his hometown, a small Massachusetts fishing village and attempts to deal with the life and family he had left behind. In addition to Manchester by the Sea, Mr. Lonergan's directorial credits include the feature films You Can Count On Me and Margaret. He received Academy Award nominations for his screenplays for You Can Count On Me and Gangs of New York, which was co-written by Jay Cox and Stephen Zalian. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Lonergan discussed the challenges of making Manchester by the Sea with director Bob Balaban. Known for his many deadpan performances as an actor, Mr. Balaban has directed episodes of many television series like Nurse Jackie and Alpha House, and the television films Georgia O'Keefe* and Bernard and Doris, both of which were nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television and Miniseries. Listen on for highlights from their conversation, including how Mr. Lonergan's rehearsal process has evolved from film to film, what he does to cultivate an atmosphere on set that allows his actors to lean into difficult emotions, and how he and his cinematographer work together to weave the environment of the set into the story of the film.
1: Well, congratulations, Kenny. Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to start with a question. I'm just going to start and say I love this movie so much. I'm a huge fan. Thank thank you. And I I have this sort of theory that if Chekhov were alive today and making movies and writing movies, (laughs) he he would be doing what, what you're doing because it's so... It's so small and so big. Well, it, that's
2: a huge compliment, and I, I can't accept it, but thank you.
1: Well, I, I, but at least you like Chekhov. What if you had hated Chekhov? Yeah, I know.
2: I once, met a, I once met a director, actually, who said, I'm not one of those guys who loves Chekhov. And I said to myself very silently, so you're not one of those guys who's terribly bright. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but maybe that was wrong of me. I don't know. Maybe no. it was just judgmental. So, Tell us a little bit about how this came to be. I mean, it's possible you all know the story, but for anybody who doesn't, it's, to me, it was kind of unusual because do you, well, there is no often, I suppose, but it's unusual that somebody would have come to you and said, please write a project about, yes?
2: Yeah, well, Matt, Matt Damon and John Krasinski came to me and they said they had an idea for a screenplay and they wanted me to write it and John was going to be in it and Matt was going to direct it. And it was essentially this idea of a man who had lost his family in, in their version. It was one child. and. Uh, who had had to leave his hometown, and who, on his whose brother died, and on the on his return, he found he was made the guardian of his nephew, who, in in their version, was a, a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked, I just really liked this idea. It's it, what's unusual about it is that it was an idea that I liked in a personal way and and became my own, um, as opposed to a project that started with me and finished that way or was something I was working on for someone else because I do that a lot as well. But it's I always it always stays there, a project that I'm trying to help out with. And this, it was an unusual situation because Matt and I are friends and I knew that I could write the script as if it were a play and and no one would do anything to the script that I didn't want to, which is totally unheard of for a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. So um, unless you direct it yourself or, or produce or control it yourself, as, as you all know. Um, so that was unusual in that way. And I and they and I then I wrote the script and everything changed and Matt was going to be in it and direct it and then Matt was going to be in it and I was going to direct it and then Matt was unavailable and when we decided to give the role to Casey.
1: Did you write the movie with Michelle and Casey in mind for these parts? No, I actually had I think
2: I had Matt physically in mind for the role when I was writing the script, and I didn't have anybody else in mind in my head except in my imagination, my imaginary people that I spend mm-hmm. most of my time with. Um, <laughs> uh, so and then, but you know, I mean, you know, that that's how it starts, and then the actors come aboard and they they cathect to the material, and, and after that, it, it, the characters become inseparable
1: from the people who, who end up portraying them. And Chris, was it hard to find him? Chris, Oh, maybe mm, mm, case, uh, the son, oh, Patrick. Luke, uh, Patrick Lucas. Patrick Lucas Hedges. Yeah. No, he, he. I called him Lucas. Yeah,
2: um, no, because Chris Morris is one of the producers, so I didn't. He, and he came mm. along from the beginning. It could have really um, confused you there. Yeah, I got mixed up for a second because he doesn't appear in the film. Um, Lucas just auditioned. You know, he's Peter Hedges' son, and I
1: worked with him. Like five minutes ago when he was 10 and a half or 11. Yeah, it's just amazing. It changed
2: very quickly. And he had just, he'd done two movies, I think, two or three movies as a kid or a, a little teen. And I auditioned a whole bunch of boys, and they were all really good. Most of them were excellent, and he just was the one I liked the most for the part. He had, I made him audition five times, I think, Wow. which was hard for both of us. I think harder for him, but I could feel his pain. But I could I couldn't afford to care that much because I had to worry about my own end.
1: Well, he seem he and and Casey seems so related. I mean, it's just amazing. It makes me think when I watch the movie that was did they, how did you prepare them? Did they rehearse a lot together? How, what was that like?
2: I actually rehearsed everybody, but not all at the same time, because everyone's schedule was different. Casey mm-hmm. was unavailable the two weeks before we started shooting, but he was available, and Lucas wasn't cast yet. Lucas was cast almost at the last minute, because um, I had trouble making up my mind, and because um, it was such an important part. Um, so they actually didn't get a lot of chance to rehearse together, and they just took to each other right away. Casey's extremely avuncular and paternal and kind and supportive, and... Lucas and and in some in some way. And Lucas is very. Kind of in real life, he's very eager to please and wanting to do well, and he's not really like that character at all. So it was an interesting watching him turn into that kid. Um, and they spent. A, I, I think it's lucky that some of our earliest scenes that we shot were in that car, because they spent a lot of time in that car together, and I and not and a lot of time. You know, we just did sequence, you know, whatever, you know, I forget what it's called now, because my mind is going, but, you know, when you just do seri- a series instead of the mm-hmm. cut, so they just drive around, and they just do the scenes over and over again.
1: Good way to get to know each other. It
2: really was, and I think, I think Casey really helped him to relax and, and feel comfortable, and, and they developed this great dynamic, and I used to love listening to them in between takes on the microphone, because I'd be in the other car, and they'd just be chattering away, and Lucas would be chattering and giggling, and then he'd turn into Patrick and be all sullen and <laughs> obnoxious. And it was really, it was, it was great. Okay. Did they? Was there
1: any improvisation in the movie? It feels so natural all the time, but I guess it's just it's precise, but it just seems very, very spontaneous. Um, well,
2: I think that's a you know tribute to the actors. The there's no improvisation at all in the script except for the scenes on the boat. Well, just the very beginning of the movie with Casey with a little boy that's all stuff Casey made up I, I was on the other i was on the camera boat and i occasionally shouted suggestions did you
1: use the sound from those takes or was that something you did in post production no that
2: was from those takes wow. we, well we had this long ride you know the harbor in manchester is, is it's a pretty long ride uh, uh, to get out to the open water and so we were filming and it looked great and they were standing in the back of the boat and Kyle Chandler was in the wheelhouse and the real guy who was driving the boat was crouched underneath inside the inside the wheelhouse. Rather, Kyle was on the outside. There's two steering wheels, one indoors and one outdoors, depending on the weather. And so I just told Casey to start talking to him, and Casey's a really good improviser, and he just made up a lot of the dialogue about the islands and this and that. I, I made the suggestion to say that he and Randy were married on Misery Island. <laughs> and um, that's all Casey, and then everything else. I can't, uh, ex- occasional word here or there, or phrase, uh, uh, maybe, but the rest of it's scripted.
1: Well, I guess the power of the story the, 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 is, is so great that somehow Michelle Williams is just tremendous, genius. but obviously she was able to keep that alive and the transition where she, they're kind of crawling out of their, their grief is such a beautiful thing to watch.
2: Yeah, I love that scene and I love them for doing it so beautifully. And you know, we all worked on that scene. We talked about it a little bit, not really about the scene so much, but what had happened in between and what just so we were all on the same page with what was underneath the the script and when the last time they had spoken was and you know, just so everyone knew what the history was. And then I don't remember having to say much of anything for that scene. We didn't we they rehearsed a little bit on their own. We rehearsed a few times around the table, and uh, then they just it was late in the shoot, so I think, and it got put off a couple of times because of scheduling changes, which I think was good. And it was just, you know, I think we were all anxious that it should go well because we knew how good it had to be and how important the scene was. But once we started shooting it, I knew it was. We wow. were
1: fine. And Michelle, I believe I read somewhere, did a lot of homework. A lot. She spent time in the places, for, both for her accent and I guess just to get get used to being there yeah
2: she did she's amazing i mean she's in more she's in a lot of scenes in the movie but she comes in and out and she has to do a lot of different things and i was just amazed because she would just show up we were all there the whole time and she'd show up at the night of the fire and then she'd watch her children and burn the house burn down and go insane on the spot and i just was Blown away, and then the next week she'd show up and she'd yell at them about the ping pong and be really hilarious and dear. And then she'd show up again, and then and she'd do the next scene. And it was just she just kept showing up and going away. And every time she came in, she just like had brought so much with her. Um, she worked really hard on the on the difference between the character and the present and the past. And I, you know, you know, with some consultation from me, but we discussed that a bit and just how she's going out in the world and how different she is and how she would have to present herself differently. She's no longer as relaxed and just casual as she is in the first scene when she has this very busy full life. And one of my favorite things in the whole movie is that in the funeral, in that slow motion sequence, when when she just nervously pushes her hair aside, when she sees him for the first time, it just kills me. Because she's so, she's just so loving and she's so aware of what he's going through, and she's going through what she's going through, and I just—I don't know. She's just such a wonderful actress. She was fantastic.
1: I was going to ask you a little bit about your childhood because I—I was thinking Michelle was a theater kid, right? When she was a pretty little in New yeah, York, yeah? yeah. And you became interested in theater at a pretty early age.
2: Yeah, in high school, in ninth grade, uh, I wrote my first play, and I think it was in ninth grade. It was a one-act rip-off of network, which I had just seen.
1: <laughs> what? That's, do you still have it? I have it somewhere, yeah. You want to do it sometime? I
2: don't I don't know how well it really holds okay. up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the amazing thing to me about you is that your father was a psych- your mother was a psychiatrist and your stepfather was a psychiatrist. And the first thing is how come you're not crazy? <laughs> was my first I mean,
2: question. I don't know. Who's not? I mean I suppose I am a bit, but I mean everybody is. I don't know. They're no crazier than anyone else. I think they get a bum rap.
1: <laughs> Good. I mean, I'm, I'm not glad they get a bum rap, but I'm glad to hear it's not. But growing up in your house, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got actual material from, from some of the... And, and, and it must have been a very affecting to the way you looked at the world and the way you became an artist to hear stories around the table and your, par- and your parents would share not, you know, they disguise things, but I guess you heard a lot of r- really interesting, personal, unusual stories at home, yeah?
2: Yeah, that's true, and there were, you know, there were a lot of us, and there were a lot of people moving in and out of the apartment all the time. I have a lot of step-siblings, and, and my stepfather tended to adopt people, and we always had someone staying in the back room. Um, I just saw one of them last night, and I was in Washington, and this uh, friend of ours, Debbie Barlow, who was made friends with my sister and moved in. She she was, I met her when she was 19 and I was eight, I guess, and now she's a grandmother. And uh, she's a Mormon abstract expressionist painter with John Lennon glasses and blonde hair down to her uh, below her waist, uh, and she wore overalls, and she's just incredibly nice, and she just lived with us for a year. So that was interesting. But My stepfather, like, I think it was just to talk about people's, everyone in the family's interested in different people's personalities, I think, partly because of their profession, and partly because, like any large family, a lot of people in it were, were insane. <laughs> so it's just something that came up naturally. But I'm the only one who ended up going into the arts uh, uh, So, I don't know that that has anything to do with it.
1: Well, can we talk a little bit about the cinematography for this? Because I noticed this is not a cinematographer you've worked with before. Jody? Jody Leelips, yeah. Hmm. How did that, I think he was voted at Sundance like most, the best up and coming, but he was up and coming and this looks like a movie of a very mature filmmaker. Well, he's, uh, really, I mean, he's,
2: he's really, you know, he really knows what he's doing. He's got a great eye, and and I, we, we work, you know, it wasn't. I have to honestly, it wasn't the smoothest working relationship I've ever had, but it was productive, and that's mm-hmm. all that really counts. But you know, we, he's a really, you know, scholar of films, like a lot of DPs are, and and I really like older movies, and so we had a lot in common, and a lot of common references, and we both wanted to, we both like a filmic look, and, um, and he was very good at trying, you know, it's shot on, on a digital, and it and uh, he was very good at getting it to look like it was shot on film, and we both really loved the area, and we really took advantage of the of the, scene, the surroundings, the town and the scenery and the boats and the water and all that, and, um, and he was really good at figuring out how to light and shoot these really difficult dark interiors with just yeah. two people in the room. And I thought and it light. was
1: really well done and very unselfconscious. You can almost forget from time to time that there's a movie going on, you get so involved with what the what the people are doing.
2: Well, that's what I hope. I mean, they used to, you know, in the olden days, the cinematographer would feel he hadn't done his job well, if you noticed the cinematography. And the same thing with the sound design. That was a point of pride, you know, up until the 60s or 70s, I guess. And even through then, if you read these DP's interviews, you know, there's, the camera's supposed to support the story and be unobtrusive. And then, of course, all these razzle-dazzle camera, you know, DPs came along and they were wonderful. So there's, there's many, many ways to do things. But I think with a story like this, you're tr- it, it lives or dies on its verisimilitude, I think. so, And also, I'm just not like master of a lot of fancy camera moves, and it would just be silly for me to try. But you do try to put the camera somewhere that expresses the situation as best you can. And if you want to, I mean, you know, if you want to get a little bit more of a remote feeling, you try to frame a little more widely. And I, I like to weave the environment in this and the not just not just because it's pretty but because it's part of their lives into the story as much as possible and he was great at, at doing that
1: how do you work on the set do you come in in the morning and rehearse first and then plan shots after that how much planning do you do in terms of uh, either boarding or shot lists
2: well it's only been I've only done 3 movies so it's different it's been different each time the first filming did, we shot listed the whole movie over three days. We just sat in, a house, in one of the set. We, the main set was we had rented it and we just sat in the empty rooms and went through the whole script and shot listed everything knowing that we could change it when we got on the set but just so we would have a plan. And we basically, I, you know, I would try to describe what was happening in the scene and what the feeling was of the scene and from there we would make some kind of determination about how to shoot it. And I followed that through in my second movie. Margaret was shot in the city, and I had uh, many more specific ideas about how to shoot that than I had the first time. Partly because I'd never made a movie the first time before, um, and I also grew up here, and I had things I wanted to, ways I wanted to show the city that I hadn't seen before that I that I, that mattered to me, um, and ways to show the characters in the city. And this movie, I just I think it was a little bit more improvised than either of those situations. We not from that area. I'd spent time there, I'd researched it, we'd prepped there. Um, I wanted it to look like real life. I don't like to use the environment as a background because to me the environment is, really has an impact on how everyone acts and behaves and talks and what they do and how they do it. Um, and it's really a story about the relationship the characters have to the town um, and so I think we some we'd basically get to the set and discuss what we we're gonna do that day, pretty much, and if we Scattered and prepped it a little bit, we had a better idea. For the big scenes, of course, we had more of an, the fire scene was completely prepared and planned, and that long pullback shot, which lands on KCM It's practice, an
1: amazingly complicated shot. It right? was
2: really complicated, and I did not execute it, but I'm proud to say that the idea for the shot was mine. Mine, um, And we, but they really did a good job. The fire guys up there are great, and uh, we, did, we, they, we got about seven or eight burns on the house, and it was really, difficult to watch, especially when it goes past Michelle. Um, And it was hard to do, but, I mean, it was hard to do emotionally, but it was very, it was actually a very easy day shoot uh, uh, in terms of uh, getting the day done, because it was so well prepared by all the technical people, Um, and uh, I think we would kind of just get there with some idea and then fish around and find like that nice shot of Lucas and Casey walking up the gangplank, I had in my mind, the whole time I was writing the script, I knew that that was gonna be, we were gonna be across a harbor from them and we were gonna watch them walk along a gangplank and then take a turn and then go up a fence and away from us. And I was sure that that's what it was gonna be. And when we got there, there was just no such configuration. Mm. So we figured out something else. And then I, either Jody said, look down this gangplank, we can put them at the end of that and shoot up and then move. Or I said it, I don't really remember. And we had them walk backwards doing the whole dialogue so we knew where to start. Right. And I I really like doing that kind of thing. It's really fun. Uh, It it was not fun and it was difficult to figure out how to shoot inside the house because there's like little room, four walls, one door. No breakaway anything, right? No, so it's like, Jesus Christ, we cannot get the camera in this corner, so I guess we have it to works it works really well. You know? I, no, I, that's I, to credit, because I wouldn't have, I was just ready. Well, but well.
1: how many movies do you see that are supposed to take place in cramped New York apartments, and they do them in California, and oh, the I living know. room is like 90 feet by 100 no, feet? Oh, I know.
2: I, I hate, I don't like that. So I, I it was nice to be, I, I mean, it, it paid off, but it was difficult to figure out how to shoot some of those scenes, because there's nowhere to go, but... But he's, you know, he lights them beautifully and easily, and I don't
1: know. You probably do this effortlessly, so you may not think about it that much, but there's so much great behavior in, I think, in, in your three movies. But in this especially, do you write a lot of it into the script? Like, he's going to be carrying a paper bag, and he's going to hold on to it. I remember there was a story that Casey told about. He didn't understand yeah. why his character would be having that bag, and then in the end, it made the scene, Yeah. Um, well, that particular
2: bit of that bit of action was in the script uh, originally, and I, he, did, he said it was so. He said to me um, pretty s- shortly after he, we gave him the part, or he accepted the part. Um, he said, "I sa- he said, I'm worried about this fire scene." And I said, "Well, don't worry, we'll figure it out." And he said, I, "It's. I know it's really emotional." He said, "No, no, I know how to cry. I just. I don't know how to hold a paper bag." <laughs> And I I didn't know what he meant. And what he meant was he didn't know how to react, he didn't know what the big deal about the bag was. And then he said very kindly afterwards that he realized that the guy is grabbing onto whatever he's got when he's watching this impossible thing. And I, I don't write a lot of stage directions about like, you know, smiling or if it's really, I will write like a joke if someone's joking so there's no misunderstanding. Like if someone's being sarcastic I'll write a joke in the parentheses, but I think that I, I'm aware of the behavior very keenly when I'm writing, and I' mostly acted out for myself in my little room when I'm working, so I have at least one version that's been acted by somebody that I can recommend to the actors as a starting point.:
1: And you were an actor yourself.
2: Not really a little bit? No. I was in, <laughs> I, I was in Oklahoma in 11th grade. <laughs>
1: Were you Judd?
2: I was, no, I was Will uh, Will Parker. Oh, everything's up to date in Kansas City. Everything's up to date in Kansas City. That's right. Little aviator glasses and an afro.
1: How's your singing? It's not bad. (laughs) I have no sense of time, so I could just sit here and they wouldn't have anything to ask you, but is it? No, we're
2: fine, I'm fine. Well. I mean, if you guys are, I don't know.
1: I was going to. S- no, I acted
2: in high school plays, and I really liked to act, and I didn't want to be an actor, so I didn't think I'd ever get the chance. So I put myself in, in my movies so that I could offer myself and accept. Uh, Are you in finals. all your movies? I appear in each film, yes. Wow. Oh. This is my smallest part, actually.
1: It's a good part.
2: Thanks. I, I would have written a bigger part for myself if I'd known I was going to direct the film when I was writing it.
1: Well, was not fair to the other actors, Yeah. I guess. There's something about the way you work with actors, how you write the script, how you shoot it, that has a wonderful, in the moment feeling. And I think it's one of the reasons that every frame in this movie is so compelling. Everything, everybody is always doing something without being busy. And the subtext is always, I mean, I'm, I'm so amazed. I've never, the way that grief is treated in the movie, is so real because it can be funny the way you don't, in this movie, tell us how to feel. My fa- one of my favorite parts, actually, is the first eight minutes of the movie when you think it's just a, an outrageous comedy of some kind, which what a great way to end up doing a movie that's so moving is you don't have to lead everybody there. The moving parts will be moving, and, and real life has is, is, People laugh at funerals, even.
2: They do. Thank you that thank you I'll take well, I don't want to compliment you that much but. no no I thank you I'm thrilled to hear all that I I, I like it I, I think that um you know I, I I don't know I'm very I'm very focused on the behavior when I'm writing and when I'm trying to direct and trying to stay out of the actor's way I'm very aware of I was trained by an act Matthew Broderick's mother Patricia Broderick was my teacher more she's my friend so I don't even like to call her my teacher but she helped me with everything I ever wrote from the time I was in 10th grade till until six months before she died, and uh, she was very, very. She was trained at the neighborhood playhouse, and she coached her husband Jimmy Broderick, and she coached Matthew for most of his life. And she was a director and a writer and a painter and very brilliant. And she, from a very young age, from a, uh, you know, from me being a very young age, very much focused me on the behavior and the, said this has to be acted. You know, it's not just writing. It's not just a You know, it's not just. Nice words like people, someone has to say this and they have to know what they're doing and you should know what they're doing too. So I tried, for, that was always my orientation. And it's been helpful and my favorite part of working is talking to the actors and, and getting in, trying to get inside the scene with them if, if they need it. If they don't, you know, stay out of the way as much as you can. But if they want help or ask for help or if I feel there's some piece of the scene they're, they're not seeing or they're skipping over, I'll say, well, I think this thought is separate. I think this maybe this is three sentences and it's not one thought, it's three separate thoughts, if that's helpful. And if it's helpful, that's great. And if it's not helpful, I, I'll try something else or I just shut up.
1: Well, whatever you're doing, actors seem to really feel very comfortable in your world and in the, in, in the, in the words that you create. I, I keep hearing that echoed by people who've been in your movies.
2: Well, I think I think they do because I really respect what they have to do, and I understand I can't do it. Really, I can do one. I can. I have a very narrow range, and within that, when I'm acting, which is rarely within that range, I can. I'm fine. But if I have to go outside of it, I don't know how. So I understand that actors have to literally believe what's happening the whole time they're doing it, or they're very unhappy and feel very exposed and terrible, and so. All I ever try to do is get them to that point where they feel like they have a foundation and they can really. And I occasionally will say, just Lucas would say Lucas, is very green. You know, he's wonderfully talented and he doesn't. He's incredibly accomplished, I think. But he, he, he's also very. You know, he's very self-castigating, and he'd be like. He'd say a line, and be like, oh, that sucked. And I'd be like, Lucas, listen, if you feel that it sucked, don't stop talking and say it sucked, because I can't really do anything with that. <laughs> and he said, well, dude, what do I do? Like, I don't know, I just feel like I'm totally phony. And I'm like, if you don't know what you're doing, just look at Casey and do whatever, just whatever you see in his face. Just react to that. If you're lost, count on your scene partner and not on your own tortured hatred of yourself, because that's not really going to help you. It's like oh thanks thanks. So.
1: <laughs> well, he's very lucky he got to do work with you and oh. do a part of such tremendous depth. Actually, I think.
2: Well, thank you. But he's. I mean, again, you know, all you can do is n- nudge and help a little bit. They really have mostly it's casting as 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 you know, I'm sure everyone here knows. Can you
1: st- tell the story about Mark Ruffalo and the moth? Do you feel like telling that story? Have you told it too much? Lately? I've never told that story.
2: It's, oh, okay. I don't have a story about that. He just was doing this scene on a porch and this moth flew into the frame and if you've seen the movie, it's a really beautiful moment because he's so in the situation. He's talking to Laurie Linney on the porch and they're having a, a non-contentious conversation and they're smoking a joint together outside and and uh, and he, there's this moth lands on his hand because we were on a real porch in the real country, and he just, he just sort of very. I can't. I, I read about it recently. Someone described it really beautifully. He just kind of took the moth onto his hand and just kind of looked at it for a while. and Then it flew off, and they kept doing the scene, and it was great. And I, it was clearly great. And so I, apparently, I don't remember this, but he says that I then rushed over and said, "My God, the moth."
1: <laughs> um, it was, must have been hard to get a second take it out of the moth. It was very off. difficult. We,
2: man, we, try, we were there all night. We were waiting for that moth to come back. Um, no, but it's weird because I try to prepare really well in the script anyway, and I don't tend to deviate from the script very much. If at all, I might think of some new lines on the set and give them to the actors. But I, I'm, and I don't think of myself as a controlling person. Um, and I, I do think the most interesting thing is whatever's happening between the actors. You know, that's, that's all there really is to watch. When you're doing a play, they know what they're going to say. They've done the play before. They'll be doing it again. The only new thing is what they know what the lines are. The only new thing is the behavior that night between each other and with the audience in a, in a play. So that's really what I'm most interested in. But I also really do like them to f- say the lines as written, you know, as best they can. Um, but all these accidents that happen on the set are just great, and and you know the gurney that that wouldn't go. Oh,
1: that was an accident. Completely. Oh my God! You mean oh, that yeah. whole struggle? where they were really struggling? Close,
2: yeah, they couldn't close the gurney. Oh. and uh, And then it I, falls down. It was, and it falls down, and they struggled, and it went on and on and on. And, and she's thought, almost you know, dying she's of smoke. Di- oh, it's horrible, and they're just everyone's just suffering, and I'm like back behind the camera, like this is great. <laughs> 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 and then, but. Uh, but it was, took a really long time, and then I had that, and I went up to those guys, and they're the real Manchester EMS guys, and I said, do you guys want to practice with the grant? We can take a break. We're on schedule. We can just take 15 minutes, 10 minutes. You guys just want to practice a little bit. And they're like, no, no, we got it. We got it. It's okay. We got it now. And then it uh, took twice as long the next take.
0: <laughs>
2: so I was uh, thrilled again, and I knew it was definitely, it was something to use. But all the time, these accidents happen, and you, o- I, I always end up using all of them. There's a scene in You can count on me, my first movie, where Matthew Broderick and Laura Linney are making out in a car, and he cracked his head on the ceiling, and they both cracked up, and I I immediately put it in the movie, because it was such a nice moment for, you know, instead of like all steamy in the car, like they actually were just laughing, like real people. Um, And so I don't ever, like, make those happen manipulatively on purpose, but um, I, I think it would be good to learn to be more, to create an environment where... More of that can happen.
1: But I think you do create that environment, and I think it happens a lot in your movies, and as you know, but I'm sure we all realize the same thing, so much of directing is literally the atmosphere that you create in which people can feel comfortable to do what they actually feel like doing.
2: No, that's, that's true. Okay, well, I'll try to do it some more. <laughs> okay, yes,
1: keep doing it. What are you doing next?
2: I don't know. I don't know. I have ideas for things, but I don't know which one's going to take. Um, I don't. I really don't know. I've, I've had a lot of assignments um, uh, that I've been, you know, writing assignments and this or that over the last few years. So I finally cleared the last one off my schedule and I'm hoping that some incredible wave of creative spontaneity will sweep over me like in, a, you know, four, you know, Half an hour and so later tomorrow, and I'll embark on some great new project. But I'm not sure what
1: it'll be. Well, I'm sure
2: it will be great. Thank you so much, and uh, thank, thank, you thank you all for here. coming.
0: Thanks for listening to this DGA Q and A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts, or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. We'll have a lot more episodes coming your way over the next several weeks, so stay tuned. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.